Welcome to the Wake Up With Gratitude podcast. I'm your host, Julie Boyer, and I'm so excited to share with you some incredible interviews with wonderful entrepreneurs, business owners, and amazing people in my life that are practicing gratitude, self-love, and living with kindness. I also sprinkle in a few solo episodes, and occasionally you'll see family members join in for the fun as well. On today's episode, I'm bringing you a very special friend and guest, Abina Perryman. Abina started a gratitude practice on Facebook a few months ago, and I was curious about why she started to share her gratitude publicly. So we've known each other for over a decade, and I've never seen her post regularly on Facebook. So I was genuinely wondering what prompted this gratitude practice. And in her interview, she shares the heart-wrenching story about why she started this practice and really opens up about how difficult the past year has been for her and her family. A few weeks ago, during the Black Lives Matters protest, she shared a very personal story about how her son faced racism and discrimination while playing hockey as a 10-year-old. I was shocked when I first read the story, and I asked her if she'd be comfortable sharing it on the podcast. I know that I haven't shared a lot of stories from Black, Indigenous, people of colors on my podcast, and I want to do a better job. And I also want to stay true to the heart of the podcast, which is to bring you stories that inspire you to practice gratitude, to make positive changes in your life, and really are uplifting, and also show you that everyone you know, goes through difficult times in their lives and how powerful a gratitude practice can be. So hearing Abina share her story from a personal perspective of just one of the challenges that her family has faced being Black in Canada It's an incredibly powerful reminder of how important it is for people like me who are white to listen to our friends when they share these stories and to begin to understand that systemic racism exists in Canada just as much as our neighbors to the South. So thank you again, Abina, for sharing your heart, for opening up to us, and I really hope you're going to enjoy this interview with Abina Perryman. Hello and welcome to the Wake Up With Gratitude podcast. I'm here with another one of my live self-love interviews with a wonderful friend of mine, Abina Perryman. Good morning, Abina. Good morning, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited for our conversation. We've actually been chatting for about 20 minutes before we pressed record and I was like, wait, we have to stop because there's so much goodness in here. Um, Abina and I have known each other for over a decade. We met uh, through a good friend, Nicole, who introduced us and just thought we would get along. And that actually turned into, you know, some business relationships, friendships. We've supported each other's businesses over the years. Uh, I've tutored her daughter and, you know, we've stayed in contact even though I live uh, across the country now. And Abina is currently a managing partner at Andrew Perry, which is a B2B marketing firm. And you know, this is like the latest evolution um, that in your life, Abina, of, you know, your incredible, incredible career, um, you know, first, you know, with corporate roles and you've been an entrepreneur and then you started your own thing. It's a really uh, awesome journey that I'd love to kind of, if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing with our audience a little bit about that part of your story, kind of how you got, you know, in terms of a professional career where you are today. 
Yes, awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. Um, so I, starting just around the time we met each other, uh, I've, I graduated from Ivy Business School with both my HBA and MBA. I've been in corporate at a big Canadian bank. And what I found was in my core, I was more of an entrepreneur at heart. And so when I look back at my journey, it was around getting different experiences to put me in the role that I'm in today. And so, you know, I had met a woman named Leah Andrew. Um, I had worked with her and admired her and we were at another firm, uh, a marketing firm. And what we found was we collaborated really well together. So, you know, whether she was working on something or I was, we'd ask each other for feedback and it was always coming back better than what, where we started. And we thought, you know, we have tons of fun we produce really great work product. Like, why don't we turn that into a business? Because we're not scared to do a lot of hard work. Um, and we're interested in helping B2B clients deliver real value. And so about four years ago, we started our marketing thought partner practice where we help business to, to business firms with their marketing transformations. And it's just been an awesome experience ever since. I can't actually believe it's already been four years because mm -hmm. I remember you launching the business like it was yesterday. And, you know, I, one of the things that you were doing when we met is you had a, a business with Stella and Dot uh, mm -hmm. as a stylist and you, you were doing really well at that. And I loved seeing you, you know, explore that side of, uh, of yourself as an entrepreneur. Do you think that like having had like a direct to consumer um, business like that, did that help you sort of when you decided to go on your own? Did you learn some things in there that benefited you? Uh, absolutely. One of the things that I is part of my personality is I'm comfortable being uncomfortable and <laughs> doing Stella and Dot was uncomfortable because it put me front and center in a sales role where I had to talk about myself. The way that you succeed in, in those businesses, in any business, is being able to share your story and connect with people on a personal basis, being authentic. And I, I think that that's where I really learned how to talk about myself. When, when I was scared and fearful about what people would say and do, the business suffered. When I was able to put myself out there and make conversations with strangers, ask them about, you know, what are their own personal challenges? What do I like about what I do? And just connect with them on a personal basis. My business thrived. And so I look back at that Stella and Dot experience of one where I got to meet some fabulous women mm -hmm. because it was such a warm community. Yeah. I got to get some really fabulous jewelry because their stuff is amazing. And then I got to learn from watching Jessica Heron. I got to learn from the awesome training they provided and I got to get an opportunity to practice talking to people, which is what business is all about. It's about connecting. Yeah. And I, the, you know, wanted to touch base there because I've done a few podcasts about, you know, the fact that I have a network marketing business. I've had it for 14 years and some of the skills, you know, we may not, for me, it's a career. And for you, it was a part of your story mm -hmm. that's led into something else. And I think that's one of the most beautiful gifts is that we can all choose how we do that kind of business. But if you take the gifts from it and the learnings from it and apply it to your passion, I mean, mm -hmm. you're four years into a very successful business 
And um, that, you know, you had that baseline before. And yeah, I'm still wearing some of the jewelry that I bought from you. I actually, awesome. I still use the jewelry case that I bought from you. And I, I actually was like, I can't believe it's been so many years uh, since that time. And you've been through a lot. You've had, we were kind of catching up a little bit before we started. You've been through a lot. And one of the reasons why I reached out right now, it, beyond the fact that you're an amazing entrepreneur, an amazing woman, and um, that you have so many amazing, incredible passions that I want to share, is that I noticed that you had started a new gratitude practice mm-hmm. on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And you're not really on Facebook that much <laughs> before, <correct>. right? <laughs> I had not really seen you often posting. And then I saw you posting, you know, 30 days of gratitude, and then you've continued ever since. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, what was it that made you start to go into this practice? So, um, an interesting background. I had received gratitude journals in the past, the small ones where you can easily jot stuff down. And I had I had used those. I typically would do it on the ride into work on, on the go train. What I found though was that it wasn't consistent and it wasn't consistent because if I had a lot of work to do um, that day, I would just spend that time working instead of focusing on gratitude. So I would cheat some days. And then, you know, if you've got a bad week, you've totally forgotten. And by the time the next week rolls around, what gratitude journal, where it's like buried in the bottom of my bag. Um, as we were talking just before we started taping, I've been through what I call a bit of a ringer. Um, just before school started for my daughter last year, she had a concussion, which actually had her out for mo- more than half, about half the year. She didn't go back full time until January, and she was in a strenuous program, the IB program. Um, and then in just around Christmas, my son came down with pneumonia and had him out of school for most of January. During that time of me taking care of him, I got sick and lost my voice for two months. And being an entrepreneur, um, when you're not working, you're not making money. So that was quite a toll. And then just as I felt like I was getting back into the swing of things, we lost my father unexpectedly in March. The pandemic hit, and then I lost two more family members by the end of March. So. By the time end of March rolled around, I was a bit of an emotional basket. Um, I, had, I was feeling like I was wrapped in a big grief bear hug. Um, I was crying all of the time. And then along with crying and grieving the loss of family was this guilt about, I have so much to be grateful for why can't I focus on that instead of the grief? And so, um, you know, I think about your gratitude practice and how I think it's subliminally been weaved into my mind when I scroll through Facebook from time to time. And so I thought to myself, you know, I've got so much to be grateful for when I look at, you know, there are people who have lost their entire families. There are people who are, are homeless. There are people who have lost their jobs. The list goes on and on. And I've got a beautiful house. My kids are both healthy and happy now, right? I've got a husband. We've been married for over 20 years. I still have my mother, my sister. I'm loved. 
I have a really great business with a fabulous business partner. We're doing well. So many people want us to win. How can I start to take myself out of what felt like this pit of grief? And so I knew this from books that I had read um, on self-practice and, and love and, and gratitude. And so I said, you know, I'm going to do 30 days of gratitude. And I didn't realize at the time that you had done that before, but I, that's why I said subliminally it, it has come in. I said, I'm going to post for 30 days. And one of the reasons I decided to do it publicly on Facebook was to ensure that I didn't forget because once you put it out there, whether or not people really hold you accountable, you feel like you're being held accountable. And what I recognized about Facebook, I think that people have talked about how social media makes you feel pressured because people put a perfect life. What I realized whenever I looked back at Facebook, it was like a living, breathing photo album for me. And so what I really wanted to do was create a photo album for me so that every time I was feeling in the depths of despair or overstruck by grief, I could flip to my Facebook page and see all the reasons that I had to be grateful. I had pictures, sometimes I had words, sometimes I had stories, but it was really for me to remember all of the reasons when it felt like I couldn't, I couldn't go on because I was just overcome with emotion. I'm, uh, those who aren't watching the video can't see, but like I'm, there's tears in my eyes with, as you share your story, uh, first, just to say, you know, how really sorry I am that you've lost so much during a time when it's the ways that we traditionally would hold each other together in grief mm -hmm. and support because we're in a pandemic, those just aren't available, right? the family getting together, the being mm -hmm. able to celebrate those that are gone in a, in a way that honors them, we've had to completely shift and change that. So it makes it extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. The other reason why I'm listening to you with so much emotion from myself is you are sharing something that I think is the most valuable thing about a gratitude practice, is that anybody can do a gratitude practice when things are going well. Mm -hmm. We can, that anybody can do it when things are going well. The real incredible gift of a gratitude practice is doing it when things aren't going well and actually looking every day. Like you said, you were looking for things to be grateful for so that you could look when things are tough and look at, even though things are hard, this is the thing is a gratitude practice doesn't take away that we're going through a difficult time, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't do that. It doesn't take that away from us. What it does is it gives us perspective and it gives us maybe a place to feel like we have hope and mm -hmm. to be inspired that even though things are really hard right now in our lives, there's definitely goodness happening. So I would, thank you. Yeah. I'd say on top of that, like the hope is absolutely true. But what I found when I started posting was, um, the posting is difficult because I'm trying to figure out which one do I want to share today? It's not that there's a lack, uh, but there's so many, it's like, what am I feeling today to share? But it also in those moments, pictures are great because it takes me back to that memory and I'm feeling the joy behind that picture. And so um, as much as I'm grieving for the loss, I'm also 
um, grateful for the memories and recognizing that um, you can't understand the happiness without understanding the points, the lower points as well. It's true that the, the opposites, the dichotomy is what makes it, it work for us. Absolutely. And, you know, on top of all of this, we've been going through a global crisis that Mm -hmm. is not the pandemic. We've been Mm -hmm. going through a global race crisis and you, again, before this, you're not a big poster on Facebook. You don't share a lot of personal stories, but you used your voice in a very powerful way to share a story that impacted not only me, but a lot of people that you're connected with. And I want to set this up to say that you live in a a town called Oakville, which is actually where I grew up. And there's a lot of white people, a lot, a lot. I mean, we talked earlier about the fact that I grew up in a time when um, the high school I went to, we counted on one hand the number of not even just black people, we're talking about anybody who was not a white person was on one hand. We were like, oh, there's the black kid. It was literally, and not in a, nobody, I don't think, but I, I mean, it's hard to know because you're a teenager that it was in a racist way. It was just literally, you're surrounded by everybody that looks the same and there's the one guy who looks different. Mm-hmm. And when you shared your story about what was happening with your son, um, it surprised me somewhat to think that we're talking like probably about 30 years later mm-hmm. and that there's this, that, that the racism is still there. And um, anyway, I'll let you tell the story because it just, it really impacted me in a way from a place where I grew up and I thought things had changed, but your story made me realize that a lot of that hasn't necessarily changed. So, you know, sharing that story for me was very awkward. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't comfortable. Um, I typically don't, like you said, do, do things like that. But given the conversations that were going on within news, I felt that it, I was compelled to do it for myself and for my family because I have always advocated for my kids to stand up for themselves and stand up for what is right. And this was one of those moments where I needed to speak. Um, so my son has wanted from a very young age to play hockey which is just mind-blowing to myself and my husband because we are not a hockey family. We're first uh, generation Canadians. Both of our families come from the Caribbean. And so he wanted to play hockey um, from when he was three. And so he's been begging for years and I've said no. And then I finally let him play hockey. But I said, you know, for you to play hockey, you need to learn how to skate first. And so I set up all of these parameters in which he passed. And so one of those things I didn't realize is um, because he had skating lessons before he learned to play hockey, he was at an advantage. Um, The other aspect of my son um, is he's always been slightly bigger than all of the other kids, about a head bigger. And so he's got speed, he's got size. And so we're in the the GTHL. So we weren't actually in the Oakville League. We were playing in Toronto and what was happening, and he was in a double double A team. What was happening was kids would skate into him 
and fall and he would end up in the penalty box. And so it was really frustrating because um, he's not doing anything. He simply has the size and the speed. And so he's able to stay on his feet and they're not, and he's getting penalized. And what I found happening was he was starting to develop a negative association with the referees. Because when kids are young, we teach them about right and wrong. We teach mm -hmm. them about fairness. We teach them about equality. And then all of a sudden he's thrust into a situation that he can clearly tell isn't fair. And so uh, this was around the January period. So we've finishing the season and he's getting a series of calls that are just ridiculous. And so what's happening are kids are impacting, impacting with him falling on the ground, he's going into the box and he's getting agitated because these calls are continuing to come. Other kids do it and nothing's happening. And I remember there was this one game in particular where two kids, he's going for the puck with another kid and he lifts the, the, the child's stick, takes the puck and goes, but the child wasn't a strong skater and the child went into the boards and the ref threw him out of the game. And so everyone on our team is saying like, what happened? This was a clean move. There was no impact whatsoever. The goalie saw what happened. He's like, Malik didn't do anything. Malik still gets thrown out of the game. And so this had been going on for about a series of five games in which I finally sent out a tweet saying, discrimination is alive and well in the DTHL. And now I'd, I'd take a moment to say, when I said discrimination, I didn't say because of his, his color. I was talking about size, right? Okay. Because, because okay. he was um, bigger, he was getting treated differently. Okay. What we started to notice was not only because he was bigger, there was also some colorism in it. And what I mean by that is when a small child impacts him and they're on the ground and he's still standing, it looks like he's the big, bad black child and the little white child needs to be protected. And that was becoming a problem. And I went to the GTHL and I spoke with the head of the organization as well as the head of the officiators and said, you've got a problem here. And I explained it and a couple things came out. One, one thing that came out was um, they said, without video evidence, we can't really have this discussion because it's hearsay. The second thing that came out, they, they claimed safety, but I said, you know, safety really isn't your primary concern. Because if safety was your primary concern, a couple things, um, baseline concussion testing would be mandatory. It's mandatory in cheerleading, but it's not mandatory in hockey. He has it because my daughter does cheer, but they don't mandate it to get on the ice in hockey. Two, if a child ever throws a punch, they would be removed from the game. And I've seen several children throw punches and get warnings and not get put in the box. Three, if you cared about safety, you would either have separate uh, groups for bigger children or you would actively train them and let them know what was expected of them. 
so that they could feel like they understood the rules. Right. And I said to them, I said, it sounds like based on our conversation, you have a different set of expectations for kids that are bigger than smaller. And he started to say, that's not right. Then he said, yeah, that's accurate. And I said, well, that's considered discrimination, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That, that yeah. is discrimination. And he said, you also have unconscious bias going on. Right. And we know that unconscious bias plays heavily throughout society in our criminal justice systems, in policing, in hiring practices. And so are you trying to tell me that it's, it's excluded from hockey? It's not excluded from hockey. And so what you have are him getting harsher penalties than other kids who are doing more egregious activities. Um, and so that period was a very stressful time for us. But what that made us do was start videotaping all of his games. And that led up to a game in which he had a team in which the players were incredibly um, aggressive and dirty. And I want to put some context. These are 10 year olds and there's no contact supposed to. He was only 10 when this was happening. This is 10, right? I'm talking about throwing punches and not getting kicked out of. I didn't realize he was only 10 when all this happened. They're 10. And so we're playing a team in finals and I realized this team is, I don't want to say dirty, but they're doing things they're not supposed to. And so I ask the head of the officiator to come see the next game because something's, someone's going to get hurt. Little did I know it was my son that was going to get hurt. And so in this game, he takes the puck from someone, drops on his knees because he's lost his balance, and an opponent cross-checks him while he's on his knees with the stick across his neck. And then he's down on the ground. The guy jumps on his chest and punches his head into the ice. The refs have called a penalty, but they're standing back. So that was the longest 20 or 30 seconds of my life as I'm watching him get assaulted in the middle of the hockey game. And the kid gets a two minute minor penalty. What? And they're 10? I'm not, I can't understand this. What? And the thing that upset me was one of the reasons Malik could play this sport in our house was because he was bigger. So I knew that if he fell, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. He'd still get it up, get up, shake it off and, and be able to skate off. He stayed down. They had to get uh, the trainer out and he was helped off the ice, which meant it was a significant assault for him to stay down that long. Yeah. And I was irate. I was fuming because he has done less and gotten more penalties. And so you cannot tell me safety first is the concern when my son's assaulted on ice and the kid gets a two minute minor penalty. Um, That was near the end of the game. And afterwards I was shaking. I was shaking because I didn't know how serious it was. I was shaking because of all of the unfair um, penalties he'd gotten up until that point and someone assaults him and they get a slap on the wrist. And what I didn't know at the time was the head of the officiating league had sat in on that game and he introduced himself to me and he asked, you know, well, what did you expect to happen? Did you want the kid kicked out? And I said, absolutely. I was a little bit hysterical 
at the time, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I said, absolutely. Since when is clotheslining and punching part of, you know, allowed play within the game? And he said, you know, what are you talking about? And because we had to record every game since I spoke to the head, we replayed it for him and he hadn't seen it. And so my question is, how do two refs on the ice, one ref up in the stands, not see my son get clotheslined and punched in the head unless there's some type of um, unconscious bias? And when he saw it, he was in shock and said, oh my God, I didn't see that. Let me go and talk to the refs immediately. And my son afterwards, he had a concussion. He was out for at least a month. He didn't go to school for a couple of weeks. He, I had dropped him off at my mom's house. They lived in a condo and he got off at the wrong floor. And he stood he sat outside the wrong condo apartment for an hour before he realized he was on the wrong floor. And he was 10. And that was the only condo that he'd ever been to for my parents, right? So he knew the floor, he knew the number, but because of the concussion, he forgot where his grandparents lived. That's the severity, right? And so what I found at the time was when I was sharing my story, with people in my network, they thought I was overreacting around the discrimination and the bias. And it angered me that I had to explain to them that whether he's getting treated differently because of his size or his color, both of them are not fair. <laughs> yeah. Period, full stop. Yeah. If there are two sets of rules, at a minimum, they need to understand what those rules are. But when you, when you take a step back, you have to understand these are 10-year-olds in a non-contact sport of hockey. And how do you make sure that everyone on the ice is safe? And how do you not say to me, well, Abina, the sport's come a long way. I don't actually care. What I care about is every child on that ice being able to go home safely at the end of the hockey game because this isn't the NHL. Wow. And so essentially what happened was a lot of reflection. There was a, a big talk I had to have with him because he was pretty upset. We decided to sit half a year out because of the stress and anxiety of having to continuously, one, get him to play differently because he was being treated differently by the refs. Two, he said to me, I don't understand why he only got a two-minute minor penalty for assaulting me. And I could not explain that to him. No. That, first of all, I honor and thank you for sharing the story with us because the, the thing that you pointed out, which is blatant, is the unconscious bias. You had three refs who were all white correct? Who didn't mm -hmm. even see what happened. And one of the things I will point out is after I made that tweet, his first game back, cause he got a five game suspension um, early on in the season. Um, his first game back, they put two black refs in that game. And to give you some perspective, 
out of all the refs, there might be a handful of black refs that, yeah, that ref for all of the years, all of the, um, the different levels. And I asked them how often they ref together. And they said, this is the first time in their history of ever being paired with another <laughs> black ref. And the thing about that game, if you recognize he was 10. So from one game to another, they're not going to change their playing style. They're not going to say, oh, it's this ref. I'm going to play this way or that way. In that game, he got no penalties. No penalties at all because they saw him simply as a child, yeah. as opposed to someone the other kids had to be saved from. Right. Oh, my friends. Um, you know, there is, we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that having conversations like this and just opening people's eyes that there are, there's a lot happening that we don't even notice that's happening in front of our faces. And you have, especially with the glaring example that after you complained and they put two black referees in the game, which like you said, they'd never ever refed a game together and your son was treated as other children were, it's, it shows that there's just such a gap and a lack and a lack of understanding. So you've spoken out, you've shared your story. If you, um, you know, you have a voice here, my podcast does get, you know, a lot of people do listen to it. So I want to give you just a space to say like, what can we do better right now? Because listen, this conversation is going to go away again. And that's Mm -hmm. the part that I find the most frustrating is this will go away again which is why I thought it was important to capture your story right now because then we can continue to share it. So people are going to forget. People are going to forget what happened to George Floyd. They're going to forget about the riots. They're going to forget. So what is it that you would say for someone who's listening right now who wants to do better, who wants to be a better ally, who wants to affect change? What would that be just for you, Abina? Um, that's a great question. And you know, thanks for providing me a safe space to share my story. I I don't say that I'm the definitive person on all of the things that can be done. I'd say if you're truly committed, then you're not, be aware of what you don't know. And by doing that, that means taking the role of educating yourself on the history of slavery and racism in North America, because that is a powerful start to understanding the history that goes beyond be, behind this. I remember when I was sharing my story um, with uh, with a couple of women on a road trip to to Ottawa and talking about the discrimination and being asked, "Do you really think they're they're racist? Like, there's no racism in Canada." And I was just like, "You know, that is so far yeah. from from truth." Right. So because it's polite, because (laughs) it's covert, it's hard to pinpoint. And so what are some of the things or assumptions that you put out there based on the privilege that you have? A simple example that I know doesn't come from a place of maliciousness is um, my daughter's cheerleading team. They've got a requirement when she first started that your hair has to be in a ponytail for practice. 
And for my daughter to get a, her hair into a ponytail is a two to three hour process for us yeah. for washing, blow drying, styling and, and whatnot. And we look at the whole week around what, what's happening and how I comb her hair. And so explaining to them, her hair is not going to be in a ponytail. She's traumatized because she doesn't feel like she's, she's participating. She feels like she needs special, special um, permission. If you said your hair needs to be out of your face, yeah. then that encompasses everyone. Yeah. As opposed to the simple thing about saying it has to be a ponytail. Yeah. The, and I love that because it's actually a simple thing that we can start to look around and say, where are we excluding be, that we don't know that we're, that we don't know that we're excluding? Where can we pay attention to how things are different for other people? And race is very important, but we also, there are lots of people with disabilities that are excluded because we just don't think, right? Mm -hmm. We don't think about other people. We don't think about how we're just unconsciously going through our lives and not aware. So that. I appreciate that. And you don't have to be the expert. That's not the point of this conversation. The point is, um, you know, on this podcast, I share stories and yeah. I share stories to inspire people to make changes in their lives. And I always ask, you know, how can we do better? What can we do different at the end of the podcast? And if you're suggesting that the first thing is, you know, be aware and look at, are we excluding, am I excluding someone just based on their hair, Right. The language just, that you're choosing. Language, yeah. Like that. Aware. The yeah. education piece is yeah. important yes. because it starts to talk about how systemic racism has, has been over yeah. the years. So while it may look on the surface like it's inclusive, there are actually um, ways that it's excluding different groups. The other piece would be around, you know, how do you start to speak up for others? right? Because part of the challenge is you see something that is wrong and the silence is deafening. Yeah. Yeah. And you experienced that you said with your community. So part of being an ally is saying something mm -hmm. in whenever we see people being mistreated. So these are simple reminders that will start us in the right path. I grew up in a very white community. I spent not a lot of time with different people of color at all. I don't really, I never really thought of myself as someone who's racist, but I'm also noticing now that I was also not thinking about being anti-racist, which is mm -hmm. a whole new word that I wasn't even actually aware. I wasn't aware that that was existing. And the education is a big part of it is, is understanding black culture, black history, and how it's brought us to where we are today. So I commit to do better on this podcast. I commit to continuing to share my message of gratitude. And that's initially what brought us together today is this, you know, this real commitment you have to this gratitude practice and how it's impacted people. You know, you say you were kind of subconsciously getting my messages, but now you're doing the same. Mm -hmm. Your message of gratitude is doing the same. So if ripple effect. Yeah, it's a ripple effect. So um, where do people connect with you? Like, let's say from a business perspective, they're, they're curious to learn about more what you're doing, uh, with Andrew Perry, where does that connection? Absolutely. There's two ways they can connect with me from a business perspective. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn and it's just a being a pyramid. There's not that many of us. There's just, <laughs> one. 
And then um, they can also check out our business website and it's www.andrewperry.com. And then from a personal perspective, they can always reach out to me on Facebook. Awesome. Well, I really enjoy that you're continuing to do your gratitude every day. I look forward to it. It's something that it brings me so much joy to see you sharing that. And Oh, Abina, just thank you. Thank you so much for your candor, for your willingness to be open and for sharing. And what I hope for the audience that's watching or listening is that, you know, I always want people to just think of one way that they can make a change, take one thing from what we've shared today and implement it into our own lives so that we can make a difference. So thank you so very much, my friend. Thanks, Julie. My friend, you did it. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thanks for sticking around. I would love it if you take the time to subscribe to the podcast so that when new episodes are released, they're automatically downloaded so you can listen to them anywhere you are. It would really mean the world to me if you would give this podcast a five-star review, should you think that I deserve it, on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for taking the 30 to 90 seconds to share your rating and give a little review of the podcast. It helps other people to know if they should be listening to this podcast or not. And of course, if you've listened this far, I know it's made a positive impact in your life. So if it's helped you, do you think you could share it with a friend? Who do you know who could use just a little bit more gratitude and inspiration in their life? And finally, If you're like me and you love talking about gratitude and being grateful and sharing all things related to gratitude, please join our community on Facebook. You can find us under Groups Gratitude Ambassadors, and we'd love to welcome you into our community. Thanks, and we'll see you at the next episode.